Hello. Hello. And welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, show number 89. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobek Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Suspense. Crime. Mystery. And uh, the other one. Thrillers. Thrillers. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. My mind is elsewhere. I think most of our minds are elsewhere, certainly in the UK. I think it's because you had a little nap this afternoon. No, I fell asleep. I, I wouldn't describe it as a nap because I was fighting it. I was I was in the Fables pink chair in front of the television <laughs> watching the Grand Prix qualifying and I fell asleep. And uh, I just think that I have, well, we've had a week of early starts, the pair of us, because we've been getting kids off to school and your eldest over to Birmingham for his daily job, which he's doing before he goes to university. Um, and that kind of caught up. We had a vigorous game of tennis this afternoon mm. as well, as well as one yesterday, and I just felt really tired. But um, I've also been working really hard this week, really hard. But clearly this program, uh, before we get to the events of the week, we ought to mention that our guest this week is Catherine Yardley. She is a first-time author in terms of uh, first published book, but author of many, many yeah, different titles and genres. Yeah, she's got quite a few sort of bubbling, isn't yeah. she? So it's a very interesting conversation about all the different genres that she's um, been tinkering in. Absolutely. So we'll speak to Catherine Yardley, um, formerly an actress as well. So that informs a lot of the way that she writes. And um, it was a very interesting interview and uh, we're grateful to her. So Catherine joining us a little later in the programme. But clearly um, we can't let this week pass and we're not going to do publishing news because really... Does it matter? No, it really mm. doesn't, actually. I mean, I suppose the one thing that I would say in a week like this week is, it, it, relating to publishing, is whether, uh, I think it's Penguin Random House who have the rights for Prince Harry's tell-it-all memoir, which was due out before Christmas, whether that gets put back. Who and, knows? Or indeed published yeah. at all. I think it should be put back. He was going to give the money to charity, but in the circumstances, um, it doesn't feel like it's something that, really most of the uk wants to read at this stage. yeah that, that would be a difficult decision for the publisher wouldn't it yeah so well, I'm glad, let's I'm glad it, we're not in that position well if we're in that position and i wouldn't have bought the book anyway but it's, imagine imagine we were in that position as hobart books we've got prince harry yeah, we would probably you know financially it'd be probably disastrous to to to, to uh, postpone it, but at the same time, it could be reputationally damaging. Yeah, I think that's I, the most important element. Yeah, because I just don't think the mood is there for for stirring over the the gripes that we've been getting leaked out through Oprah interviews. Uh, the most recent interview from Meghan, uh, Duchess of Sussex, uh, was in the cut in the United States, and again, muttering, muttering darkly about you know Harry having no father now and all this sort of stuff, and it's really rebounded on them terribly in the light of Her Majesty passing on Thursday. Um, let's just reflect on in, you know, that initial shock. Um, I was driving your eldest back from the train station. We yeah. happened to be listening to the football. We, were, we had talked about, you know, the, her ill health, which had been announced that afternoon. Um, and I think I'd speculated, you know, as a former journalist who used to do all the sort of what we used to call the Royal Obit Procedures rehearsals. We used to rehearse them every year in, in depth um, in case Her Majesty or the Prince Philip or Prince Charles, whoever, passed away. What you do in those circumstances, it was well-grooved within the BBC. We did it every year. You take a weekend out of your life to, to, to do this. Mm. So 
the wording of the statement from Balmoral and Buckingham Palace was such that I thought, yeah, you know, and, and the way that the BBC reacted and went to rolling news coverage straight away on the basis of just one statement suggested things were, were very dark. And indeed, the news came through. I was listening to, we were listening to the football um, on Talk Sport, and it came through and they interrupted at half past six to make the announcement. And they did it really cack handedly. Um, I don't know who the newsreader was, but she stumbled over it. She didn't really understand what she was reading, and it just didn't have the right tone at all. So I was quite sort of, right, well, get over to Radio 4 and listen to somebody who actually knows what they're doing. Um, it was a, it was an awful way to find out. What about you? Well, I was um, I was working. I can't remember exactly what I was working on, but something Hobeck-related. And uh, my middle son just... Um, called out from his bedroom, which is next to the kitchen, uh, mother, mother. And I thought, oh, it's a spider or oh, the cat's <laughs> brought a mouse. And I said, what, what? And he said, the queen, it's happened. So that's mm. how I found out because I didn't have any um, anything on the internet open at the time. So um, then I immediately tried to find some information. And it's really strange that, I, you know, it was it was sort of really difficult I should have connected to radio, um, live radio, but I didn't think of that. For some reason, I just thought I'll Google the Queen and see what comes mm. up. But yeah, it was very strange. Yeah, very strange. And um, my youngest, Toby, who's been talking about the process of what happens in um, yes. the event of yeah. uh, the Queen's death for quite a while because he's just been interested in how it all works and, and mm. the formality mm. of it and the ceremony of it. He didn't say anything he didn't come running down or anything i was quite surprised but um later on in the evening i had a lot of uh discussion with him about what had happened and he felt very unsettled by it yes he was yeah um i mean he's only 12 and so of course all he's known is the queen as the queen well we've all of us in our family you know uh say for your mother my dad my mum have known only one queen, well, only one monarch. It's actually only 10% of the population have known yeah. a different monarch. Yeah, my dad relates the story of when he was at prep school and the headmaster came in to relate that um, George the the Sixth had passed away and uh, how much that affected him. So aged, how old? Uh, he was about 11, oh, I About guess. the same age as Toby then. Yeah, yeah, yeah it really f- impacted. And, 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 of course, the connection between... The British psyche and the monarchy was much, much stronger just after the war. Yes, of course. Uh, yeah. And, you know, George VI's leadership alongside Winston Churchill through that period was uh, steadfast and, and, and had endeared him to the British people very, very strongly. And it was a big shock. With Her Majesty, we all expected it. But also we thought, well, do you know what? The Queen Mother made it to 101, 102, something like that. Is the Ma- Her Majesty going to make it? But I think once Prince Philip passed away, mm. there was definitely she started to withdraw from public life. She became frailer. She just didn't, you know, some of the spark, the life, had physically, you know, the the emotional impact seemed to have a physical toll. That's not uncommon. No, yeah, it's basically dying of heartbreak. To some extent, yeah. Mm. I mean, you know, it's it's well known they they slept in separate bedrooms and all this sort of thing. I mean, you know that. You know, it was it, it was a love match, but you know, not in the sense that you know they spent all their lives in each other's pockets. They didn't. They really didn't. No, I it, know, but we don't. We don't know them. No, but uh, clearly, she loved him incredibly deeply, and I think that really had a massive impact. You see the the, the degradation in her physical well being from that period, from when she was at Windsor Castle, sorry, at Windsor Chapel, you know, the um, St George's Chapel, mm. for the. Uh, 
funeral, sitting alone. And the woman that we saw greeting Liz Truss for the, you know, for the, um, uh, you know, becoming new prime minister, it, the the contrast was was quite staggering, actually. So remind me, what's the time frame of that? Is it a year, year and a bit? Yeah, about a year. Yeah, yeah so that, yeah. Is, that is quite incredible. But the other thing Toby said to me, he said, well, not only have we got a new prime minister who nobody voted for, <laughs> you know, suddenly the, the yeah, we've got <laughs> something that's been stable for. for how many years? Is yeah, 50? everything's up in the air. Yeah. However, however, <laughs> I mean, you know, despite that initial shock, I have to give credit to King Charles III, his address to the nation last night at six o'clock. So we're recording this on the Saturday. We're talking about the Friday evening was so well judged an incredible piece of, you know, just the balance between honoring his mother, sharing his own grief and the family's grief, but also honoring her service, promising that he'd endeavor to do the same and also recognize the fissures within his own family, with the mention of Harry and Meghan, but also his determination to follow her example by stepping away from being a public controversial figure, which he has been in terms of interfering in, in, in environmental issues, uh, particularly, but also architecturally, all sorts of things that were his interests he would speak out about. Uh, he now, as the monarch, cannot do that, and he acknowledged that. And mm. I think that was all in all, and the, the heartfelt message at the end... Um, well, it got you choked up. It got me choked well, up. Yeah, I mean, I, like I said to you, you know, I, I, I could not be sad to the point of tears about the Queen. I, I was solemn, but I didn't feel that same sadness that I would feel about somebody I knew until I heard Charles's speech, and then it hit me, mm. and it took me by surprise. It was really, really strange sensation. Mm. But not only that, so there was Charles's speech that hit me, but the other moment when it hit me, was when we were playing tennis earlier in the day. So we booked a court from 12 to 1 yep. in Newport. And there weren't many people around. It was very quiet. There was nobody else on the court. So it was just the two of us. And at 12 o'clock, the bells started. Mm. And I knew that was going to happen. But there was something about the atmosphere as well. It was very cloudy. It was quite close. It was mm -hmm. quite heavy in the atmosphere. And the bells were tolling. And the birds were quiet. And we had that for a whole hour. But it wasn't um, sort of fr frantic at all. It was very gentle, bell yeah. ringing. And it went yeah. on for the hour. And then as soon as the bells stopped, the clouds parted and the sun came out. Yeah, much it, like the rainbows came out on the day, magical. you know, when they announced, made the announcement of her death, the rainbows came out across the country um, on the Thursday. Um, yeah. But it, I think what the bells did was it was a real throwback sensation to, you know, time, times of national distress past. Yes. Um, that's how it felt to me, yeah. you know, that, you know, you're, you're, you could hear the bells tolling for the start of a war or, uh, again, you know, a national tragedy. Like, you know, I, I presume they were rung for the death of Sir Winston Churchill in the sixties, uh, that there is that feeling, you know, and I, the statistically, when you, when you hear the sort of things of, you know, what it means that the, 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 the Her Majesty, the Queen reigning for as long as she did 70 years, for instance, there was just this throwaway comment on Test Match Special saying that she, her reign has encompassed 86% of Test Cricket's history in terms of the number of matches played. <laughs> I mean, that's just 
bonkers. <laughs> Great statistic. The, or the fact that there's 101 years between the birth dates of her first prime minister, Sir Winston Churchill, and her <laughs> last one, Liz Truss. 101 Hilarious. years difference. I love that. You, uh, you know, all of that. The fact that the people who were signing her proclamation, as Charles was proclaimed today, with, you know, members of the Privy Council, the people who attended that, most of them had personally known Queen Victoria. It's just, <laughs> bonk, you know, so 1952 when the proclamation yes, was... Yeah, yeah, I know you what know, you're trying to say. Yeah, 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 these are people who had, had actually, you know, were young, uh, were of an age, uh, old enough, I suppose, yeah, to have to known remember. Queen Victoria. Yeah. So this is, this. it's just so hard to, to contemplate. However, I, I just got this feeling that, you know, okay, it's always going to be a very slick operation in terms of, you know, they've rehearsed this and thought this through every single step of the way. The plans have been dusted down on an almost, well, every sort of annual basis um, as to what happens when Her Majesty dies and what level of mourning there is and how those stages take place and how the succession takes place and all that sort of thing. But there is something immensely, something to be proud of, I think, for us as Britons and indeed for anyone in the Commonwealth um, in that, the ceremonial, people can criticise it and say, oh, you know, it's a waste of money and all that sort of thing. But it doesn't half reassure you when you need reassurance. The permanence of that, of those institutions kicking in and dealing with a very, very sad and emotional period with um, clarity, clear-sightedness, a plan and... Um, a sense of purpose. But also I think it's actually quite sombre in a way. It's not ostentatious. No, it's not, no. And they get the balance exactly right. And mm. I think, you know, that that is definitely something to appreciate. Yeah. In, I mean, so, I mean, we were, perhaps we should do this after the interview because we need to get to Catherine Yard. Yeah, but, we do. But, you know, reflections on, on our contact with the royal family. We've already mentioned it a number of times on the on the podcast, actually. You know, I've had sort of little bit moments and stuff like that. And I used to work, uh, very briefly worked at the Buckingham Palace. So I have some experience of that. My, my sister, Rachel, worked there for a lot longer than I did and, and had more contact with the Queen, for sure, than I ever did. But um, I have observed uh, as a reporter Prince Charles on walkabouts and things like that while visiting my various patches of news when I was a news journalist. Um, and uh, I have a friend, a colleague, who who knew the two princes when they were very young and um, was a very good friend of theirs during the period just as their mother died. So I have what, some... at school or something? No, well, not quite. No, he was older than that, but he was... Uh, I, I don't want to give his name, but he was a society disc jockey, if you like. He used to do the the sort of um, he was uh, a viscount himself. He kept that very quiet because he was on local radio. But what he used to do, he did Charles's fiftieth birthday party um, as the DJ. Uh, I think it was fiftieth. A royal DJ? How cool is that? Yeah, Highgrove and William used to go to the gigs that he would, this guy would do. And support him and, 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 and get the records out and stuff like that. They were very close. A posh disco Dave. Mm. And he had a he had a letter from Tiggy Leg Burke, who was their, their nanny, on the wall saying, yeah, thank you so much for spending some time with the, the, the guys, you know, with the two princes at a time when they needed, um, you know, some diversion. So, Do you uh, think he played Dancing Queen to get people on the dance floor? Oh, who doesn't? <laughs> who doesn't? Especially a thing like that. 
anyway, let's get to uh, to speak to uh, Catherine Yardley. And uh, lovely to, to speak to Catherine. Uh, she's a former actress and director and latterly has, has focused her time on fiction. How she does that with the number of kids she's got. And all, that, uh, all under seven as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's amazing. But um, we really enjoyed speaking to Catherine. Um, just remind me, do you remember her? what her book is. Do you know, it began with an E, that's about all I remember. I think it was called Ember or something. Ember, I, yeah. That's right. Um, I will just get the details up. It's, I, in I, my, it's in my basket, actually. Is it? On Amazon. I do want a copy. Ah. <laughs> okay, here we go. Um, I will look it up. Oh, it's not going to come up. It's going to come up with a coffee mug, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you love that about Amazon, though? I mean, that, that happens to me. What did I search for? If you search for one of our authors, if you search Wendy Turbin, it says, did you mean windy turbine? And gives you a whole list of <laughs> yes. pictures of fans yes, and things. Yes, it's most unfortunate. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, Catherine's book is Ember, and um, it's uh, women's fiction, but she's also writing a crime novel at the moment. So uh, let's speak to Catherine Yardley. Well, it's a great pleasure to have Catherine Yardley here on the Hobcast Book Show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. And very graciously, you are one of our listeners. So it's very nice to meet one. I know. It's a rarity. Interviewing I, um, a listener. <laughs> I, I love your podcast. I love it. That's so sweet of you. Well, thank you for coming on. And uh, we're delighted to have an opportunity to speak to you. And of course, at the end of this hopefully very pleasant experience will come the slap in the face that is Rebecca's random question. That, you see, Catherine knows about this. Yeah. Really? <laughs> so she's a listener. <laughs> Yeah, I love Rebecca's random questions. Yeah, they they get ever more random. But anyway. Well, um, I, I will warn you, this one came from a 12-year-old. Oh, okay. God, Toby's not been involved again, is he? That's, yeah. that's fine. I have three kids. I know I know what kind of questions they ask. Yeah. How old are yeah. your kids? Let's, let's get some personal details first so we can establish more about you. Okay, so I have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-year-old. And you can Quite write young. a book? Yeah. How have you done yeah. that? <laughs> so, <laughs> everybody asked me that question. Uh, well, this book I actually wrote years ago when it takes so long to get a book published. Mm. So everybody says, help you wrote this book. Like, well, I've written other books since, but this book I wrote ages ago. Um, but you know what? I set myself a word count of, usually it's 3,000 words a day. I put it down to 1,000 in the summer holidays because it was very full on. It was just me and like these three children just wanting something from me at every moment. Um, and even that was tough, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you can't have any of your own say, at all. It doesn't get easier. So even when they're, what are mine, 18, 16 and 12, they still wow. want. Yeah. <laughs> well, the demands are slightly... Well, they don't need entertaining quite so much because they're quite happy to sit. No, they need food. It's just feeding, you know. <laughs> yeah. If you thought, thought youngsters, like, you know, toddlers and whatever wanted food, honestly, teenagers, you could fill them up constantly and they're still hungry. So good luck you, you for know that. My, 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 son, my two sons are like that. They eat and eat and eat. And I don't know where they put it. The one-year-old eats more than my four-year-old. So <laughs> I think it's boys. They just eat but, everything they can find. Well, I do have three of them, so yeah, they do. Yeah, it's the hunter gatherer in us, I think. How do I'm you have money then? Sure. You must be they must be eating out a house and home. <laughs> pretty much. I think they're pretty yeah. much eating the business out of business, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <It's getting laughs> <to that> <laughs> We've got plenty of those they can eat. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us. And um let's let's talk about first of all your, your novel. Um 
and your path to publication. So it's called Ember and it is squarely in the women's fiction side of things. And and let's, let's talk about, so why is that important to you that, that telling stories from that perspective? So I actually, well, when I was writing a book, um, I read uh, some domestic thrillers. They're really popular at the moment. Yeah. I actually thought, you know, if I write something domestic, no one will really be interested because people like fast paced things. They like people who are being murdered or whatever. And then I wrote a book, which I keep mentioning, called by Kate Murray Brown called The Upstairs Room. Yeah. And um, it's marketed as a ghost story. Uh, which it kind of is, it's got like that kind of in it. But also it's really about relationships and it's about marriage. And I thought, well, I could write a book and just put women's lives in them. And that's not really what the book's about, but that's very much part of it. Because I have read thousands of books in my life. I'm a very, I, I read all of the time. And what I don't read a lot of is the truth of women's lives. And there is a market now, there's a huge market now for kind of unlikable women. <laughs> People say that my character is unlikable, which is fine, I take it as a compliment. But I think women deserve that. We deserve to have complexity. We deserve to have unlikable female characters. We deserve to have tales about marriage and not just like, if you think about romance novels, it ends just as soon as they get together. Well, women's fictions, kind of what happens after they get together, Yes. and all. So I think women are kind of having our time and we deserve to have our stories told and all of their messy glory. I think that's a brilliant definition, by the way. I, you know, you've really distilled it well. You know, romance br- brings you to the point where people get together and then it's the yeah. You, yeah, you know, women's it's, fiction it's, deals it's with what happens afterwards. Ever after, isn't it? You're talking about yeah. the ever after. So, uh, yeah, but not so much the, the, the romanticized version, yeah, exactly. you know, and it's Rita, I married him. Ever after, you know, ever after. No, exactly. Yeah. So what I mean, happens next? You know, uh, what, uh, yeah. it's got me thinking that when your children, when your child, especially a female, you have this idea because of all the stories are all about the romance and then that's yeah. the end. You do, you grow up thinking that's what you're looking for. <laughs> I know. And then they don't prepare you for real relationships because you're like, hold on, where's my flowers? Where's my champagne? Where's my chocolate? Where are my foot rubs? You know, where is all of this romance? I've been with my husband for 12 years now. And I wrote a romance novel recently, actually, because I thought I'd give one a go. And I was like, how do I know what romance is? <laughs> You know, we've got three kids. When do we have the time to even really talk to each other? Never mind be romantic. <laughs> I would say, I like that. And so, I mean, what was that experience like, um, you know, going into that genre? Because if if nothing else, romance is one of the strictest yeah. uh, forms of writing in terms of genre rules and pacing yeah. and all that sort of thing. How, how difficult was it to, to to make that adaptation? Do you know, I think I just wanted a challenge and... During COVID, I kept starting to read books and having to put them down because they were kind of in a headspace I didn't want to be in. I wanted to kind of read positive books, happy books. And so I started reading romance novels. And some of them were like, they were, they were good enough and I enjoyed them. And then some of them were just kind of superb and just really on the nose. 
So I thought, you know, I'm going to give this a try because they are very strict. You're right. They are very strict. And they are these rules that you kind of have to go by. But I actually found it, obviously, I'm not sure if the book's any good yet. I've kind of sent it off and I haven't received it back yet. But yeah, I actually, I enjoyed it just because we, I've seen, I think anyone's seen those of romance novels, um, romance films, and you've read a lot of romance novels. So it's be interesting to see if I've managed to take all of what I've seen and put it into a page. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I, I when I was working, I'm still working on it. I haven't done it for a long time. Um, <laughs> one of my works in progress, certainly in the 1940s, 1940, in fact, I used a structure as provided in um, uh, Scrivener by Gwen Hayes, I think is her name. And she is one of the sort of leading U.S., um, romance writers, and she has this sort of uh, beat sheet, if you like, of the 20 different stages of a romance novel you <laughs> need to hit. And so yeah. I, I shamelessly just took this thing into Scrivener. If people don't know what Scrivener is, it's a it's a piece of software which allows you to organise your work, and it's it, it's very flexible. I, I don't actually use it terribly much because I, 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 yeah. I it's too complex for me. But the beauty of it was there I had the the, the 20 scenes that I had to hit all worked out. And the companion book explained to me what, um, you know, the, the touch point of the first time they meet and how it's always going to be something where they don't like each other to yeah. start with. You know, <laughs> they bump into each other at a party and he's obnoxious and drunk and blah, 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 blah. And he, she thinks... Now, that does sound like real life. Well, yeah, exactly. And <laughs> she thinks he's an arse. And, you know, and, that, and, and from there, you know, from that unpromising beginning, they gradually... Uh, develop the relationship and they go through you know they get to almost the point where they really like each other and then some disaster strikes them and they fall apart again yeah. and then at the end they come together and i it was so useful even though i wasn't strictly writing a romance story it's it's more of a mystery suspense and spy novel but there is romance in it. there is romance in it and actually it provided the perfect arc for these two <laughs> characters to keep to keep you know uh moving away from each other and then coming yeah. back together But yeah, exactly. It's it's that form and, you know, that that rigidity actually helped me sort of hang it together, or at least it has so far. (laughs) I'm thinking about doing that with my next, you know, so I'm writing one at the moment, it's a kind of crime thriller. And I tried to write that during the summer holidays thinking, oh my God, this is so hard. You still don't give me a moment. And I was kind of thinking that I want to take, even though I've written, I've written about in total 11 books. And I think that I want to take more creative writing lessons. And Brandon Sanderson, he does a great YouTube um, lecture. And he does one on romance, which he said, basically romance is removing the thorns from the rose, which I also thought was great. But I think the, the more you do, the more lessons you take and the more books you read, the better your writing gets. Yes. That's help. I think that's true. I think there are a lot of courses out there that, that will pass yeah. on a lot of structural information. But ultimately, I think that the great writers are the ones who, probably like yourself, have read tons and tons of books, thousands yeah. of books, and have inwardly ingested storytelling. Yeah, I um, agree. I remember Russell T. Davis, who is going back to Doctor Who now to to re- you know having relaunched it, yeah. saying exactly that that he never sits down with a structure because he it comes naturally to him and he's really yeah. suspicious of writers who have to go and, and and plot things out um 
in a in that sort of formulaic way but i think you can say that about anything any creative yeah. it's like art you know you you can have natural ability in art but you do gain from learning the techniques as well that is where, where would you say you are Catherine, on on that spectrum in terms of planning and plotting or do you just feel your way through it so basically i get an idea and then I think I wait until the character's kind of fully formed and then I write, usually I write 3,000 words a day until the book is finished. I don't, I don't really know what's going to happen. Like in my head, I know what the book is and what I want to say, but I don't really structure. I just write. And I'm a little bit embarrassed saying that because a lot of people, when I say it to them, they're like, they're absolutely horrified. <laughs> but it kind of works because my agent says to me, like, I have really great structure and it's because I'm well read. So I'm going to take her compliment and run with it. That's a good one. No, I mean, some yeah. of our authors are very much like that, aren't they? You know, they say they might have a vague idea of what's going to happen, but yeah. actually it might go in a different direction, but it's a better direction. Yeah, well, you don't know what's going to happen until you start writing. Sometimes a character, sometimes you just start writing and then you realise that the characters are doing this or that or this scene started. Like, holy, I didn't know that was going to happen. So mm. you surprise yourselves. Yeah, your characters are say are almost saying to you, I don't want to do that. I'm gonna do yeah. this. <laughs> that happened in a book where I really wanted to, I really wanted the character to divorce her husband and she refused to. So <laughs> there you go. I see what one of our authors, um, Sue Shepherd, she she has a, a very similar uh, relationship with her characters, doesn't she? And she, yeah, they, don't <laughs> they tell her what they're gonna do. Yeah, they don't behave at all. I think that's all. I, I I agree. I mean, sometimes, um, you know, it feels like, uh, oh, come on, you know, I've got to get to this point in the story, and you're yeah, holding it up because, dithering, yeah, because you, yeah, you know, I've got. I feel that so much what you're saying. I feel it right in my heart. It's so true. <laughs> it is. It is. It's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, you know, we are the creators, and yet at the same time, they they. No, you're they, just a vessel. Sorry. Oh, yeah. yeah exactly. I mean, there is, there is that. I mean, I think I think that 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 is one of the great things about writing, though. It is that yeah. that struggle. If it didn't hurt, and if it wasn't a battle yeah. all the time to keep on top of it, and on top of those characters, and on top of the plot, and all the other things that you've got to think about, it wouldn't be as rewarding as it is. Yeah. It has to be little. Yeah, I agree. And I think also you could, if as a reader, you can feel that. In when you're reading it, you can feel that the characters are more alive than just words on a page. That's true. I found with Ember, I found it very difficult to write. There was times where I found it really difficult to write. And in a way, I thought I was writing a comedy, but then I did a book club and they were all like, this is a heavy book. It made me cry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was looking at the reviews. So some people are saying that, weren't they? They were saying there was a a lightness to it but it was actually covering some very deep themes and yeah. a lot of emotion you know actually sort of affecting the readers yeah i love this okay. review from a linden uh which was is, went up on the 30th of may uh this year on amazon <laughs> i was totally gripped from the excellent start when a woman forces her husband oh yeah I've out of the that. car <laughs> and drives off with no explanation this is a domestic story of family tension and unresolved emotions. A dad leaves his wife and children, and though he returns, the reverberations of his actions leave the family split apart. Been there. Uh, I've the been fact, there too. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the book is original and honest in the way it portrays the schisms between the members of this fractured family 
and the plot does not follow the expected route. There you are. Yeah, so no, that, no. yeah. Um, <laughs> there are no easy get-outs for the characters, and they have to face difficult realisations. While the subject is dark and fraught, this is a very enjoyable read because the characters are so human, and it is ultimately a very hopeful book. I found the ending very moving. I look forward to reading oh. more from this talented writer. That's a lovely review, oh, isn't that it? That is absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another one, I must admit, because I've been looking at the reviews as well, another one said, I needed to find out why this book's got so many five-star reviews. <laughs> and I <Yeah>. love that. <laughs> I think that's a pretty I good think... distillation. I've been so moved by the reviews, actually. I mean, some of them have kind of almost made me cry. I actually got my first two-star rating on Goodreads today. Oh, no. For oh, that, I, I, like, I had like five-star reviews for ages, and I had one four-star. And all of my friends were like, I got one star, I got two-star. Like, why am I only getting good reviews or good ratings? Probably my family members or something. But... Yeah. There you go. A good read can be brutal though, can't it? So. Yeah. <laughs> but I did a mistake of I was trying to promote the book. So I was like, look at my amazing good read reading. And then as soon as I did that, obviously I got a three star and a two star. And I was like, okay, I deserve that. <laughs> you brought that as that was a commentator's curse, as we would call it in, in broadcasting. You brought that yeah. down on yourself. Yeah. Um I deserve it. <laughs> But it, it it that is a that's a wonderful review, and I think that it's a yeah. brilliant distillation. Um, we should get sign them up for the reviews uh, <laughs> of um, of what you've achieved in your in yeah. your novel. And I think that's um, let's uh, let's look at that that sort of human side. Um, how do you? Because a lot of people think that when they're writing, they're capturing humans yeah. and making them relatable, but actually, it's still a very rare thing. And I think that people are really looking for that at the moment. Mm. If they can really buy into the characters with all their foibles and all their dark sides and all the things, the mistakes they make, you know, often for what appears to be the right reason um, has disastrous consequences. It it takes a lot of um, skill to deliver that. So how much when you're writing is your effort and emphasis on that? I think... Um, the characters and their thoughts and their feelings and what they're going through is just everything. I think who we are as people or who we are to each other. And I think our stories are what makes us. So I think the fl- getting the flaws out, getting putting them through the ringer, all of these just exposing kind of, to put it in a cliche way, just like peeling back the layers of the onion. I think there's just nothing more important than that. No matter what genre of book you read, if someone has done characters well, that book is a good book, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's certainly a philosophy for somebody who we uh, admire greatly, Matt Bird. Um, he yeah. builds everything, and his advice is always around getting delivering those characters yeah. and getting the dialogue right and all those aspects of, of, of character design and delivery to the, to the reader. Get that right. And you can pretty much you have any plot. Yeah, you can shoehorn any plot. People <laughs> buy into the characters and love them, or hate them. Then, as long as they get an emotional response and drag you through emotionally, yeah. I think that's that's the key. So, congratulations on achieving that. But how difficult is it to? I mean, you've moved genres, and you were talking about now yeah. thinking about a crime novel. Um, that's a departure from from this women's fiction that you had published. Yeah. How difficult is it to maintain that across the different genres? So I don't have a specific genre that I read. 
I agree. Just I'll read absolutely anything as long as it's a good book. If I read the blurb and I'm like, that sounds interesting, I'll do it. I think every genre has its rules um, and readers have certain expectations of what those rules are. So I kind of go in thinking that, but I think it's also the story which leads where the genre, what the genre is. Because I had an idea for this crime thriller and the idea for the crime thriller wasn't going to work as a romance, obviously. But I think when you do start writing a different genre, you need to read everything in that genre and you need to read a lot in that genre and you need to keep up the momentum of reading in that genre to get it right. So I don't know how anyone can write a romance novel or a crime novel and then not read because you get the beats and the pacing from other writers. I mean, I wouldn't read, obviously I wouldn't read something which was a similar idea just in case it infiltrated into my story. But yeah, I think you need to read in that genre and then take that energy and then put it out. So are there any particular writers that you admire who have who are able to get this sort of emotional core in their characters that you've taken um, any influence from? There are so many writers that I love. Um, oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Difficult question. This... Whatever people say that to me, it actually blows my mind. <laughs> I get all of these names just come to me. And I was like, oh. um, do you know you interviewed one of you interviewed Karen McKinley, who yes. I oh wow, Karen, she her book, The Storytellers, her she she was amazing. Like that book really had a huge impact on me. Mm. Yeah, I read it as well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was one of a kind, wasn't it? I've never read anything like that. Before. I haven't read anything else like it. Um, the other writer, I read um, a bit by Lauren Westberger when I was like, during lockdown, and it was called The Wives. I don't know if you've read it. It was no. kind of quite a slick, sexy novel. Um, and after I read it, I thought, I want to write my own slick and sexy novel. And I did, <laughs> and it's going to go out on sub soon. So hopefully someone will want it. Um, and do you know what Sarah Bonner? Um, she did My Perfect Twin. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Amazing. yeah. Amazing. I love her. Um, there's a lot of really good debuts out this year. I do know quite a lot of them, but Mar- Morgan Owen, she wrote The Girl with No Soul. That's, mm-hmm. that's really good. That's YA. Um, when I was growing up, my favorite novelist was Enid Blyton. Mm, me too yeah completely obsessed obsessed. and I think I read those books so many times and Jane Austen as well I love Jane Austen I actually tried to reread Jane Austen recently and I had to stop but I don't know why it just it was so kind of I was rereading Pride and Prejudice and all of the words are just so all this time later they just still work so well Mm. Oh, Sebastian Fox as well. I have to get that name in there. Sebastian Fox. He's, oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. But Enid Blyton. Every t- if I'm ill, I read Enid Blyton again. Do you? Even Aww. though I'm an adult. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Mallory Towers or something. You must have yeah. been very healthy for the last four years. I've never spotted you doing. But <laughs> the, I mean, the Jane Austen thing. This is an interesting thing you bring up because I think yeah. that um, Jane Austen's popularity, I think, goes in waves. I mean, it's always there, but yeah. you know, there's there's Austin mania every sort of 10 years 
there's yeah. a sort of outbreak of it and i think she's been damaged by all the copycats that go out yeah. there and reversion pride and prejudice and sense and sensibility for a modern audience there's there's hundreds a week yes. yeah. <laughs> mainly us writers i think who try and rewrite it or as i've been asked to narrate a number of books which are essentially Pride and Prejudice, but with yeah. new character names. A bit like Bridgerton has sort of gone down that route a little bit, but yeah. sexed it up a bit. It's just garbage, frankly. <laughs> and I think it's damaging her reputation. Well, she doesn't mind. I'm new, she's not around to, to notice. <laughs> yeah. Whoever runs the Austin estate will not be happy. I mean, it's just, it just is rubbish. Well, I don't know. They probably get money, don't they? I don't know. <laughs> I think they might not get money. I think it's been, is it? I think it's probably out of copyright. If all oh, yes, it is. Yeah. Out, it'll be because it's out of copyright. That's when everybody kind of jumps in there, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. But isn't that the greatest form of flattery? If, well, if you're, one, yeah, of, one of your books, just one book, gets repeated and copied and made into yeah. hundreds and hundreds oh, of... Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but No, I, I appreciate that. But I just think there's so much rubbish out there. But there is an audience who cannot get enough of the same story arc and the same similar characters and scenarios. No matter where they're put in, in history, 25, yeah, 25 or, or, whatever. or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's the same. It's, yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, but goodness me. It's people, why people watch East tons out there. And why people... Well, okay, there's people like me watch wrestling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's re- repetition. Repetition <laughs> gives you yeah. Does, that's true. Yeah, I you like that, that feeling you get and you want that feeling again, but you don't want to read the exact same thing again, over and over again, because that would be a little bit boring. Catherine, in terms of um, what, you know, your life to date that take, brings you to this point where you're an author, what what have you done in your life that feeds into your fiction, do you think? So I worked in the film industry. I was an actor and a casting director and a producer and a film director for quite a long time Mm. um, until I had my son, actually. And then I thought it would be easier to juggle being a writer with being a mother. So that really played into my writing because I I have a lot of um, friends who want to be writers but don't know how to do characters so I tell them to go take an acting class because what does an yeah. actor do play a character so that is the best piece of writing advice I give is just go do an acting class and then be the character and you know you can talk to them it's fine nobody's looking you're in your room typing you know so, well, I, was, uh, I was looking at your uh, IMDB pages so yeah. I mean there's a lot of credits there as you say yeah. um and some very, very big productions that you've been involved yeah. in. I mean, you know, some TV stuff that, that everyone knows, like Luther. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it, 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 it must be fantastic. I mean, obviously we have um, Robert Dawes on our books, who is yeah. a very experienced um, actor and, and, and draws a lot of inspiration from the writers he's worked with as well in, when he writes. Um, actually, I think it intimidates him sometimes a little bit that mm-hmm. he, he's worked with, you know, um, John Sullivan, who wrote Only Fools and Horses, for instance, or something like that. Um, but nonetheless, um, yeah, you say take an acting class, but nonetheless, it's going to be really difficult for quite a few authors because they're quite introverted. So to put themselves out there. Yeah, do you think a lot of actors are introverted? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Because I'm quite an introvert. I'm a social introvert. It's quite interesting. Um, I acted under a different name, actually. Uh, it's Catherine Balavage, but it, I yeah I did Luffer and I 
bet up Paul McCann. Yeah. A lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and then I um, opted, acted opposite Eddie Morrison in a yeah. film called Dunk Hearts. And he tweeted me recently saying, yeah, I loved that scene. It was su- such a good film. And I kind of made me go, Psh. But I think, um, I think a lot of creatives are introverts. Mm. I think we're a very weird blend of people. So I went to a book launch recently. You had all of these people being social and talking to each other. But I bet it took them days to recover. Yeah. And also I bet that in, inside they're thinking, I hate this. I absolutely hate this. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I must admit that it takes it takes us all, or, you know, when we Both go to, some, us, to yeah. a festival or something like that, it takes us all our energy uh, yeah. to pluck up the courage to start having those conversations. Uh, at Crime Fest this year, we took some real revving up, didn't we? At London Book Fair, we, oh. we, we found it impossible. And then we need a darkened room. Hiring a, we, 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 it gets easier <laughs> because you know more people and there's always yeah. a sort of go-to, someone you can go and say hi to. But when, but when you're working a room that you don't know anybody in, oh, my God, just forget it. I mean, it's just like I, I want the world to swallow me up. It's so nice to hear that from other people because we all think it's just us. Yeah, mm, that's true. Yeah, we it looks like everybody else is fine. <laughs> yeah. We don't realize everybody's thinking the same thing. Mm. I think a lot of people are. Yeah, I mean, I, I I was better at it when I was younger. I could cover it up better. But well, I just drink something, and that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like, I'm the Hobeck designated driver. Teas, I can talk to anyone. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm always uh, unable to uh, to use that. That, that method but it's That's um not true a harrogate you... <laughs> okay i came to a harrogate but then you know we were staying there for two or three nights so it, it didn't matter anyway I, I, we digress um but that's interesting i mean you know that that introversion but if you know for authors going in and doing a class what do you think that's going to do for them i mean clearly they're going to have to inhabit a character and yeah. and, and think about the movement and the speech and all the other things that, that come with it so if they're really shy then I would recommend some acting books. There's um, one called The Actor's Methods. So and it tells you all about characters and characterization. So Jack Nicholson refers to actors as action writers. He says, we're just telling a story. So a writer is just a, not an action writer, you're a writer writer. So when I first, when I first started acting, I joined the Scottish Youth Theatre. Yeah. I was so shy. I could not even stand up. Um, I was kind of shaking. It was really hard to put myself out there, which is why I did acting. So I, when I went to college, I was offered to play some, do studying arts or acting. And I chose acting because I was the shyest person you can think of. And I thought, you know, this is going to affect my life. I want to really bring myself out there. So I took an acting course. I took an acting lesson. So my advice is be brave, be very, very brave. And then just with the acting, it will acting teaches you that every single thing about a person tells you something about them from their posture to their accent how they have their hair the way they wear their clothes everything about someone tells you something about them you can read a person just by looking at them seeing how they talk see how they treat other people and you can you can't learn that by just reading an article on how to write a novel it's very very deep and to put that into a novel means that you're going to be a fantastic writer yeah mm. i think that's very true no i yeah it's I, I, interesting, I, I, isn't? I haven't what, heard that before but i like that I, what you were saying about you know those details and and you know yeah. the, the, you know everything we're reading people all the time and actually we've got to give enough as writers give enough clues yeah as to the person you know 
you can do little subtle things without having to do the listicle sort of description of everything they're wearing or anything like that. But it was interesting, Derek Jacobi, I think it is, who says when he's putting a character together, if he gets the shoes right, the rest of it follows. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about the shoes. If you think about it, someone's shoes tells you a lot about them. Mm. And they'll tell you a lot about them. And I think as writers, we get too into the plot or being wordy or making a really good sentence when what people really need is to know who this person is. See, I've read some novels which I enjoyed and were good enough. And I liked reading them. But I didn't know who the characters were or really got into them by the time I'd finished the book. They were just telling me the story from like A to B or they were just part of telling the story. And so when you get that novel, which brings you really deep into a character, that character stays with you. Yes. They mm. don't leave your head. I find you it, feel sad at the end, don't you? Because that's really what happens next. Yeah. You yeah, I think that, that's really valuable. I think, you know, although we may have heard this several times on the podcast with various people, it, it's always worth repeating that if you get your characters, they land with the readers mm. and they inhabit people's minds and souls and hearts, then you're on a winner. And yeah. doing that, you can't do that by rote. You have to feel yeah. it too yeah. you have to really let them people those those characters breathe but then of course the, the real challenge that people have i mean let's say that we've had this debate with some of our authors and and, and you know some take a different you know have, there are all these different approaches some overdo the detail perhaps and some others don't put enough in mm. and you know that's that is always a choice but that is the the real skill of an author and an editor, I think. We'll get the balance. Getting the balance right, yeah. yeah. You, you know, knowing instinctively really? how much you need to give the audience to then take it further. You don't need to lay it all out. No, because yeah. you need the negative space, don't you? Yeah. You the, do. the bits that are missing, you can infer just as much as the bits that are there. It's true. Yeah. When you're facing your, you know, looking at your manuscripts and and, and thinking that, I mean, um, how how many revisions would you go through on a, on a draft? Do you know, it varies a lot. With Ember, there were so many drafts. I think I even lost count. And then I wrote a novel set in the acting world where I think it's also completely different from the original draft, completely different. But then when I wrote my third novel, I wrote one draft and I sent it off and my agent completely loved it. She said, I don't know what there is to edit here. And I was like, well, okay. So that hasn't had a lot of editing yet. I'm waiting for it to come back. But yeah. I, it's kind of, it's it's different. I think if I really, if you really know what the book is, where the plot is, then it's easier to get from A to B and not think, oh God, I have to rewrite all of this. I think I'm Gillian McAllister. She writes an entire book, doesn't she? And if we heard mm. that she wrote an entire book, then throws it away, then writes it again from scratch. Mm -hmm. That's that I find that hugely impressive, but also absolutely terrifying. Yeah. yeah, there are a number of authors I think who do that, use that approach. You know, it is absolutely torching each draft. But that, that's a misconception, isn't it? That's the, the misconception that that makes it a waste of time. That makes no, 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 it no, a waste of time. No, I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, it, it clearly works for some people, but um, I oh. mean, I must admit that when I pick up a project that I've been, you know, I had the flow for a bit, and I got sort of certain way through it, and then I dropped it for whatever reason life's got in the way hobbit's got in the way whatever then you come back to it and it's really hard if you don't finish that draft 
you're from, right from this a to hard. b getting to the end it's really hard to pick it up again mm. really hard the worst, the worst thing is not to finish a draft you have to write my how i work is i have to write a little bit of it every day and i always leave it in the middle of a scene or something's happening or it's a cliffhanger so that i know when i go to write the next day what i'm writing and yeah. i have get to the end because with my romance novel I made the mistake of because I was pregnant at the time I got to almost to the finish and I thought God, I'm so tired I'll just write the last when the baby comes oh ha 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 that did not <laughs> so it, that was a really hard book to write and I did not enjoy it no mm. but did you what did you gain from I mean it may not have been pleasurable to do but have you gained from from the experience I did, yeah. I think you came from every experience when you write. I think you learn to write by reading and writing, and there's no other way. You just have to read as much as possible, and you have to write. So every draft that I've done, when I first started writing a novel, I thought, you know what, no one, I'm not going to become a published writer. No one's going to want this. And on Facebook, I'd write, I'd write, I've written, done this first draft, yay. And it came up on my memories, like I've just finished the third draft of this novel, blah, 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 blah. And, I was, and I'd published it and it got these good reviews. And I'm like, when I wrote that post, it didn't occur to me for one second I'd actually get published. I thought I was wasting my time. But I wasn't because no. if you're right, you're not wasting your time. No, not at all. I think that's that's very fair. Can I can I just add a funny story about having a baby and ambitions? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll drop out for this bit. So, so when I had my first <laughs> child, I thought I need something to read in hospital, don't I? After he's born, so I got War and yes. Peace. <laughs> wow, that's a very funny story. That's a very funny story. How far did you get? I didn't even open it. <laughs> yeah, must have been very heavy as well. Yeah, you're a bit... yeah, but I thought, I thought, what else do you do when you have a baby? I've seen my sister and I thought, all she does is sit and feed it. So she must need read, she must read a lot. <laughs> yeah, it took my time. So I managed to read The Serial Killer's Wife by Alice Hunter, which was an absolute amazing book. I don't know if you've read it. No, but... I haven't. I know, so, I know of it, but not read it, no. It's a must read. It's just, it's so well done. I loved it. I read it in, I think, four hours. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, and I, and I was in early labour as well, so I was like, I'm just going to ignore that contraption. This is a good part. That's a good distraction, actually, isn't that's, it? That's, that's <laughs> yeah. awesome. But I, I just remember with the birth of my first child, I was eating cheese and onion crisps pretty much through the whole uh, labour process, and then eventually it was a C-section anyway after five days. So I, I, ate, I, ate a lot of, I ate a lot of cheese and onion crisps, it has to be said. My longest was four hours. Five days? Five days, yeah. Five days we were in hospital waiting for it to arrive. <laughs> it was dreadful. A horrible experience. Anyway, we go. We, 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 <laughs> Digressed into baby it, stories. Yeah, I mean, yeah. almost as bad as my experience of trying to finish a novel. So, you know. Ah, uh, uh, that's true. Maybe there's something in that. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Long think labors. So. <laughs> it's very true. Um, in terms of uh, future plans, I mean, you, you mentioned your agent. Can we name check your agent and just talk about that relationship for, uh, for a moment? So, my agent's called Susan Yearwood. Um, she took me on and God, when was it? 2021, I think. Mm-hmm. So when I was pregnant, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to throw lots of mud at a wall and just see if I can get an agent. And I didn't think it would happen. And it did. And I was really surprised. But she's been really positive. She's been really nice 
about my writing. She's been saying lots of nice things. Um, we went to lunch at the Ivy, which was really nice. First, you know, got to meet her after lockdown had stopped because I stayed with her. Then I think it was people weren't really meeting up. Yeah, but it, it's really nice having someone to send your writing to. Yes. Who then reads it and say, and then edits it. Uh, it's just having someone there to talk to about things he, that's invaluable. It's absolutely invaluable. Yeah, it's an important validation as well. Getting that because so many people don't get an agent. So many people. I mean, you know, yeah. it's a fraction of the people who who write a book ever get seen by an agent properly so that's an achievement in itself and obviously it has led to publication which is terrific um and hopefully you know these other projects that you have submitted will come back positively as well um what (laughs) have you another genre that you're going to apart from the crime thriller that we're working at the moment you know you're working on at the moment is there anything else that that on your uh your to-do list on my to-do list um, erotic, erotic or, leprechauns, we, erotic yeah, leprechauns. there is a genre in that I, i'm sure you've heard me it, talk about it on the podcast there's a hundred percent a genre on that um a lot of, that's probably really popular and on tiktok as well you know on tiktok i don't i don't know if any of you're on tiktok but they do spicy they like spice in books and apparently yeah. that's called for like really steamy sex scenes but i didn't realize that at first obviously but it's, it's really funny they're all about spice but uh I don't I don't know. I don't think I'm gonna write horror because I'm too much of a wuss. But I think anything else, like I've I've done a classic writer's thing of writing a short story collection. Yeah. Which I think we all have somewhere and yeah. on our computer. We're like, what do I do with this short story collection? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I've done crime, I've done romance, women's fiction, I've done the kind of school gates. Skillgate PTA women's fiction novel as well. It's kind of like Other Parents by Sarah Stovall. Have you read that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like that. I thought that was really good. My book's very similar to that. And that's about to go on subs. Someone please buy it. Sorry, I keep saying that. But <laughs> buy it. Well, it sounds like you, you know, you have a wealth of ideas. And um, I'm, I'm amazed given, you know, <laughs> the impact that having children of your, of their ages, yeah. Uh, has you've got the discipline and the, the time and, and the dedication to 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 manage that word count every day I mean that's just astonishing I'm sure it'll get easier you know with school around the corner this week but yeah. um uh that's that's really tremendous yeah I mean it makes me think we we should we should be able to write books <laughs> well if we weren't marshalling and and being book parents to dozens of authors then you know perhaps yeah. we could but um you know we've, we've made a choice well that's a huge achievement that's a huge achievement and must be so exciting as well. Oh, it is. I mean, when we get a new manuscript and it, the problem oh. is, is that we've, got, we've always got a backlog of, of um, our established authors sending manuscripts. Yeah. Well, they, our established authors keep writing, which oh. is great. But yeah. The sods keep <laughs> writing books. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, um, so we've got that pile, which we yeah. obviously have to prioritise yeah, and, and, and get feedback yeah. and, and all that sort of thing and, and advance the process. And then we've got our submissions, got which we still have a whole load oh, from last year. And there's a lot. And they, and they now, email me every three months. Yeah, they? and and we still haven't got there because I am the most painfully slow reader known to man, and and my opportunity for reading uh, fiction for pleasure is just non-existent, really. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm working, you know, in some form on on Hobeck products, so uh, and, and books, so it, it's not easy. But having said that, 
you know, I, I think no matter how things go, we can still proudly say 50 books have come into the world. Because 38. Actually, no, it's not. If you look on, the, if you look on KDP, there may be 38 <laughs> in the world now, but on our list. Oh, uh, the ones coming as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. And if you okay. add in the ones that aren't on that list, <laughs> it's over 50. So, no. Nah. Anyway, you know, <laughs> but those, those are 50 books that, that most of which would not have, uh, you know, without our input, be in the world right now. So that's a great feeling. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, that's a huge, huge achievement. I'm sorry, that's my dishwasher making a noise. I do apologize. Oh, don't worry. We've we've had the builders outside. You know, they had about a dozen vehicles charging up and down and digging. And, and it looks like it might thunder again soon. Yeah, so it's been it's been a noisy environment all around. The one thing that we haven't had is a visit from the cat. So uh, we should, we should uh, feel grateful for that. I love cats. <laughs> well, you're very welcome to ours. Honestly, no, you? you're not going to yeah. the cat. <laughs> My my middle son would be heartbroken. We're going to he do it. Her. You know full well that at some point there's going to be a Hobex subscription competition no, where we, we give away not. our cat. No, we're not. We are. No, I'll give you away instead. It's going to be a winner. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Catherine, sorry, before we fall, descend into a squabble, we ought to get to the, the whole crux of this interview. I mean, uh, we can talk about writing until the cows come home, yeah. and it's been brilliant. But let's get to Rebecca's random question. Well, it should really be called Toby's random question because I he he's been moving his room around today, and I said, Toby, I, I need a random question because I've run out of ideas, and he came up with something straight away. So Toby would like to know: Is there one thing that you've purchased but never used? Well, That's that a good. A great one. That is a really good question. Um, I bought a cable which didn't fit my my phone i don't know if that counts and i've got paints which i don't have time to use because children and paintbrushes as well basically any exercise equipment that i've bought <laughs> yeah i think loads of people have got um, that haven't they i i feel i feel quite bad now because there is a lot of things that i've bought and not used yeah and well, yeah. i'm sat next to the probably the person who has bought the most things in his life and not used i imagine do you think yeah or used once maybe oh yeah i mean i always have ambitions <laughs> for the, you know this is going to change our life we're going to have this okay right so i haven't used the ice cream maker i got for christmas that much it's true it's how about true. the spin bike over there uh probably half a dozen times i think i've used it you use it a little <laughs> bit more but it has been beneficial uh, to some small degree and it will be beneficial in winter i'm, I'm sure of it though so, i mean i've got bikes which i literally i mean you know i dreamed of getting and i've only ridden four times one sitting in my dad's garage which mm. was a very nice bicycle and i've rode it four times and um <laughs> i haven't ridden it in four years absolutely terrible so yes i think i am the king of of such purchasing you are yeah it's awful it's awful. I mean, it's, hang on a second, though. I know you get through your books, but you do buy an awful no, lot of books yeah, that books, you don't get read. I know, I know. I have don't got an enormous pile of books to read. I mean, I'll touch the nerve now. Well, I think if I worked out, if I read one a week, I'd probably be dead twice over by the time I get to the end. <laughs> it's like my ex-father-in-law and his wine collection. He'll never drink it before he passes. I'll help him. <laughs> Happy to help. <laughs> 
Well, look, Catherine, it's been an absolute pleasure. I don't know where you found a window long enough with um, with the demands yeah, of family life. Apart, quite <laughs> apart from the wash, the dishwasher, uh, to, to speak to us. But it's been a pleasure. So, um, tell us more. Where can people find you? More details about your work. Um, so, my books: uh, Waterstones, W. H. Smith, Amazon. Obviously, I think it's on Kindle Unlimited as well. Um, from the publisher's website, Blackwells, just from the usual places. Um, I'm on Twitter as Balavage, B-A-L-A-B-A-G-E. Uh, I'm also on TikTok and the same username and Facebook. Oh, we'll have to follow you on TikTok then because we're, well, yeah. when I say we're on TikTok, Hobeck through me. <laughs> it's on <Yeah>. TikTok. <laughs> I love TikTok now. I didn't think I'd like it, but I love it. It's just so joyful and lots of fun. I I find it so addictive though. I can I can it just I go, oh, I'll just have a look at TikTok and I'm lying in bed and it's like yeah. twenty minutes later and I think oh. I'm my noticed. word my word count has gone down. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get myself off it now. Absolutely, absolutely. So Ember <laughs> is the novel uh, and it yeah. is on Kindle Unlimited, as you said. And I am going to get it and I will read it before I die twice. I promise. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Catherine uh, Yardley, for joining us on the whole cast Thank book you show. For Thank you. Well, that interview was uh, conducted, and you know, we'll keep the, the we kept the random question in, but we we conducted that interview the day before events unfolded in Balmoral. Um, so, you know, if anyone feels that the tone of that conversation was was uh, perhaps uh, not appropriate. Uh, in the circumstances of things, well, we don't feel uncomfortable with it, but nonetheless, it was recorded before, so that's that's the context. Okay. No, I just I just wanted to say that. Yeah, no, 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 it's a good point. Not not that I think that we ever strayed into territories that, that wouldn't be appropriate this week. <laughs> I just felt that you know we should say that um, you know a fun conversation probably. I think the tone of the conversation would have been different. If we oh, recorded if it had been after Thursday. Absolutely. Yeah. No, Absolutely. we recorded it earlier in the week. Well, we were going to reflect, um, and thank you to Catherine Yardley for that. And next week, um, we'll say our interviews are going to come from a special event, should it go ahead. And I, I suppose it might still be moot because we have the state funeral following uh, on the Monday. But oh, next, it is Monday, is it? Yeah, it's going to be Monday. They're oh. going to have a bank holiday for the state funeral, as announced earlier today. But uh, we have a special event which we're sponsoring, organised by Malcolm Holling Drake in Harrogate, uh, Harrogate Noir. The tickets have already gone, sadly, but um, oh, it's great that they've gone. No, but, it's fantastic. Sold uh, out, yeah. Yeah, and another Hobeck author will be there, Ollie Jarvis, along with some, some other great names as well. So looking forward to that. We will bring you a taste and reflection of that. We'll uh, be there with our microphones. We will. We will. And, of course, um, you know, the tone of everything's going to be affected by what transpires over the next week. Anyway, um, I suppose one thing, if we're looking at change, uh, the piece of news that we have a new culture secretary is, I think, a positive thing because Nadine Doris, we've uh, had a go at her in the past and um, was barely across her brief. I mean, some of the gaffes she made in um, select committees um, about all sorts of things, particularly broadcasting, where she had her sights set squarely against the BBC – were pretty horrific. And she's an author herself, but she apparently is going to be elevated to the Lords. So we don't need to worry about that. We have a new culture secretary um, whose name escapes me. All The one thing, <laughs> salient fact about her 
is that she used to work for WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment, which um, I went to yes, see last I week. I don't remember the name either, I'm afraid. <laughs> Michelle Donnelly, I think, something like that. Uh, anyway, it, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, she, she will you know, make her presence known in the fullness of time, but all government business in the UK is going to be kept very, very quiet during this period of mourning, for sure. And then things will start to pick up with the new prime minister. But at least um, I, I did punch the air when Nadine Doris did not uh, take up the offer to become cultural secretary once more. She's she's, uh, she's going to scarper. So if anyone disagrees with this new cultural secretary, will she hit them over the head with a chair? <laughs> she might do. <laughs> she might very well or do. Or grab them by the neck and do a sugar daddy thump on the no, ground. I don't know. I mean, she's worked in television. I mean, you know, she's done lots and lots of things. She's got quite an interesting background and clearly... Uh, I think she's going to be more across her brief. But nonetheless, um, in the past, she has also said, you know, the licence fee must go and the BBC must be, you know, eviscerated and all this sort of thing. So um, all things that I'm... I can understand why people feel uh, anti the BBC in many, many ways, and so do I in many, many ways. But at the same time, you take away the licence fee and it really is going to be very difficult to have any sort of rich, enriched cultured life um, from that source. Yeah, in well, the there won't be much left, will there? No, there isn't, no. <laughs> anyway, we won't get into that. So in terms of, um, I mean, I only saw the Queen in person the once. Go on then, tell us about when you saw... Well, the- she came to visit our office, and I'm sure I've given this story before on the on the podcast, but she kept, she opened our official offices at Salford, at Key House in Salford, where the BBC had moved. Uh, this would have been a year after we'd moved in. What so, was she wearing? She was wearing a very, very bright yellow uh frock coat and dress ensemble you know the sort of thing where and a hat where, you know it was all the one it was the same um shade of yellow she's one of those rare people who suits yellow you know mm, she did she didn't smile a lot i have to say she had the at that stage her face had sort of gone into repose in in terms of the front face but when she did produce the smile because <laughs> the, the the bizarre i mean it was a very short visit my goodness she did the unveiling and she walked around our office in a in a slight semicircle and walked out again uh, everyone in my office despite being told by us as management that we you know the protocol was not to video the queen with their phones <laughs> no they're, they're not you're not supposed to are no you? you're not no. at all of course they did which really annoyed me then we had the encounter with the duke asking me what i did and i said you know world service and he went oh you broadcast those bloody countries i have to go with my wife all that sort of thing yeah, it's very funny it was a great story that um but um then dotton adabaya who who presents overnight or used to on five live don't know if he still does um we had come into the office normally you wouldn't see him you see during the day he was there he was on the first floor parapet which is where five lives offices are looking in over the edge into the the ground floor it's all open plan and with a big sort of shaft of light because there's a sort of central atrium on each floor and he's looking down and he was wearing a sort of velour tracksuit nice <laughs> and his mbe which he'd just received and he said, you know, he then suddenly called out three cheers for Her Majesty. Again, not really protocol, but everyone. That's quite cute. Everyone did it. And she unleashed that million watt smile of hers, mm. um, which was quite touching. But otherwise, I mean, she just seemed to be a sort of, oh, God, do I have to unveil this? Do I really, you know, I'm not really interested in what's going on here. <laughs> um, the Duke had done his, uh, he, he was opening the new music centre of Salford University. And he got that done far quicker than anyone expected. So, <laughs> so he caught up with Her Majesty. 
It was it was uh, it was funny in terms of Prince Charles. I mean, I've had uh, one or two encounters in terms of not really speaking to him, obviously, but having been on reporting duty, um, watching him visiting places, and uh, it was fascinating. And there was one point he went to the West Dean Agricultural College, which is in West Sussex, in the Downs, and um, everyone got very excited on the royal what's called the Royal Rota. It's when you are um, when you're a journalist or a photographer and you apply centrally to the um, Central Information, um, whatever, CIS or whatever they call it, um, they they put you on the what's called the Royal Rota. So you have, to, you have to do what they tell you in terms of standing where you are, moving around, whatever. You, you are within that bubble. You cannot just break away from it. You have to stick with it for as long as the Royal is there. Yeah, and so what he did was he bent down and he he was sort of he was taking a great deal of interest because it's his kind of thing, you know, horticulture and all that sort of thing. And he ate a flower off one of the plants. <laughs> Brilliant! And, and the photographers caught this and they were going, "Oh, that's that's going to be good." And I sort of chirped up with, "Yeah, how about this for a headline? First he talks to them, now he eats them." Because he was always famous for talking yeah, to plants, he was, wasn't he? Wasn't it? Yeah. That was always the thing in the eighties or the seventies or whenever it was. It was eighties, yeah. Eighties, yeah. That was the, the thing. And they went, Oh yeah, brilliant, right, we'll have that. And uh, <laughs> Julie appeared in the Daily Mail. Um, yeah, that is a very Daily Mail headline. <laughs> but he had this sort of relationship with the press photographers who were you know, they he knew them all because they they followed him around and he would sort of throw banter banter statements at them and stuff like that and oh you awful lot you still here and all this sort of stuff um that was you know but i i always it always felt to me when i saw him that you know he was biding his time for this particular moment i mean mm. clearly he's always groomed for it because from the moment he was born and when he was conscious enough to know it he was going to be the, the king at some point if indeed um you know he outlived yeah, his mother yeah i mean right so that's always hung over him and it's hung heavily on him i think i, uh, I sensed a, almost a sense of relief in him yeah, in a way yeah i think so it's finally here to some extent mixed with that grief but i think at the same time um you know, in everything, observing him, he has, I mean, I think the relationship with, with Camilla helps in the sense that he, he certainly, in terms of being an edgy person that he was in those days. Yeah. And I'm talking about reporting at a time just after, probably just before Diana's death. So they'd been divorced at this point when I when I was following him around. Um it, he he was not comfortable in his own skin in no, many ways. No, but, I think you're right. But, yeah, but but from from what we've seen in the last twenty four hours, he very much inhabits the role. And I think this, the the transition and his preparation for it has been magnificent, and and his behaviour so far. So um, from that perspective, that's wonderful. And in terms of uh, you know the way that younger royals now move up. Um, in seniority, it's been interesting. I'm very glad that William and Kate are now Prince and Princess of Wales straight away. There's no hanging about with that. Would you like to know about my encounter with Charles? Mm, I would. It's not quite as exciting as yours. No. So I was about eight years old and we had to make flags at school. Yeah. And then we had to stand on the edge of the field where there was a main road. And we were so excited because Charles and Princess Margaret were due to go past. Mm -hmm. I don't know where they were going or from, but they were going to go past. And we were there waving our flags, really excited. I'd 
butterflies in my tummy, and then a car went past. That's it. And that was it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um it's that's tough sometimes. <laughs> and the closest I've been to the Queen is I lived very close to her cousin, Lord Litchfield. Of course, yeah. And she must have been to visit him, surely. Oh, at some I would point. have thought so. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So. Well, um, we ought to to bring this to an end. I mean, just to say that we have a king who is a published author, so that's always um, oh I, yes, he the is, old he? man of Loch Nagar, yeah, uh, with his own. Oh, if uh, he wants to turn to crime, Hobex your <laughs> your publisher, he, Charles. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, you know, He'd be he, too busy to write a crime novel. I think at this stage he's <laughs> going to be too busy, and I don't think he's really going to have the inclination. But nonetheless, um, uh, we well, I suppose as Hobex, we we would like to uh, extend our condolences for the passing of her majesty and to welcome king charles iii and we look forward to what's going to be a very interesting period in british life with a new prime minister and a new king and uh, no doubt a coronation presumably next year in better weather when they can actually arrange things um which i personally would want to go to i really would so i'm going to aim to get get to the coronation i think Yes. Not, I know it doesn't appeal to you particularly. Well, it's the thing that doesn't appeal is the faff and the crowds. I have a very practical outlook on this sort of thing, and I just know I would get quite panicky in the no, crowds. No, I'm, I'm not pro crowds, <laughs> but I just I think you know in the nature of these things. Um, but I just I just want to be around it. But the thing is, when you when you mentioned you know this is a po- possibly a once in a lifetime opportunity, possibly, mm. but it's certainly the first time in you're 51 and I'm 50, the first opportunity we've had for anything like 52. this to experience. Sorry, I always say, sorry, I'm a bit slow. 52. The first opportunity you've had to experience anything of this magnitude. Mm. So, yes, you, sh- you should. Well, I also feel this connection because I did work at, work at the palace briefly, but it was, you know, in a very... I, I, actually, this is how I would like to finish this show um, with another anecdote, if I may, which I haven't <laughs> told yet. But um, when I was a warden, on the summer openings, the second year that they opened this uh, initially when they were opening, opening Buckingham palace in the mid nineties, it was to raise money for the restoration of Windsor castle. And they opened it for, I think it was eight weeks a summer or something like that. Uh, my sister had done it the year before and she got me involved the subsequent year. And I, so I was making money between finishing my finals at Exeter and going to, to uh, journalism school in Cardiff. And, um, my job was as a warden uh, within the palace, and I didn't know which room I'd be or which area of the tour I'd be uh, presiding over or guarding any given day. But occasionally, I would be out in the central courtyard of Buckingham Palace. And so uh, the visitors on that route used to come in through the ambassador's entrance on the one side of it, on the... I'm trying to think which side it would be. So east, west is the main bit of Buckingham Palace that everyone knows about. East is the one that overlooks the Mall. So we're looking at the south entrance, effectively, of the palace at the ambassador's entrance. And what used to happen was coachloads of ladies of a certain age would arrive from the <laughs> the regions and you know, the, re- the the different countries of the of the country. And you get, you know, for instance, you get lots and lots of bus tours from, uh, I don't know, Lancashire or North Wales or mm. whatever arriving. And these poor ladies would they'd not... They'd been on the bus for four hours. Well, they'd been on the bus and they wanted to go to the toilet was the main thing. But the toilets were in the queue out in the Mall and Green Park or 
St. James's Park or wherever it was, which is what my sister was in charge of. And if you missed the toilets, you had to wait till the end of the tour to get to it. So they were always a little bit desperate, but they would just be awestruck when they came in. And you're looking across this courtyard and they would look up towards the east wing. And that is the wing, as I say, that has the balcony that overlooks the Victoria Memorial and the Mall where they do the waving, right? Oh, yeah. But on the other side, in the internal side of that wing, there is another balcony, which looks very similar to the one that everyone I knows. I know what's coming. <laughs> and so they go, oh, is that, oh, do, oh look, look, is that the balcony they're they, they away from? And I would go, uh, no, madam, it is not. But it is, in fact, the one they rehearse, <laughs> the waving. <laughs> total tongue-in-cheek. It was a total fib. Oh, oh, they must do. Oh, the Queen Mother, she's so good at the waving. Have you not? Oh, she's amazing. <laughs> and then I would get them all doing it. You know, we do the back-of-the-hand wave, sort of rolling it forwards like that. You should have gone to the tower for that fib. I know, I know. But actually, I think, the, you know, I have a feeling that, Given all the stories about Her Majesty's amazing sense of humour that they're coming out now, that, that that have sort of been sat on until this time, I think she'd have found that funny. And also, if she needed a bit of extra cash, she could have been a book narrator because she was apparently very good at mimicking. Yeah, she was. Yeah, and... no, she was a, a terrific <laughs> mimic. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, she could have come to our studio. <laughs> Absolutely, but you know, I used to say this. You know, oh yes, oh they must rehearse. Oh, they're so good at it. I, oh, oh, I do admire them. Oh, to do that one, to do it for so long that you know you need the stamina to do the waving. So. That, that you know, these poor ladies—they went away. Um, presumably, some of them no longer with us as, as well, uh, thinking that that's where the royal family used to rehearse their uh, their gatherings on the, yeah, on, they, the on the balcony. They probably, they probably went home. They told their children. Yeah. They told their grandchildren. So there's a, a pocket of population yeah. in the north of England who believe that the royal family rehearse on a little balcony. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, it's just me, isn't it? I mean, that is the sort of thing I do. I pull people's legs all the time. So You pull mine all the time. I do. One leg I is do. longer than the other now. <laughs> I can't help it. It's just been me. And I used to do it as a tour guide in Cambridge and, and, and as a boss at the BBC, and it gets me in trouble. But that's just me, and I'm not going to change. Uh, and with that thought, um, on a sombre week, uh, thank you for joining us here on the Hobcast Book Show. Again, we'll be back next week with our range of special guests from the Harrogate Noir event organised by our own Malcolm Holling Drake. He of the Harrogate Crime Series and the Merseyside Crime Series, which I have been spending all week. I've finished recording Sin this week. I want to say <gasps> one thing I've Malcolm's really... Malcolm's listening, you know. I know. Well, I finished <laughs> it. I finished recording. And He's I'm dancing. Halfway through the edit now. And I'm making every effort to be able to... Turn to Malcolm and say, it's going to be published on a certain date. Doing my best. Anyway, um, a difficult week for us all. But uh, from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hobcast Book Show. Please don't forget to go to our website, www.hobeck.net. And uh, also to check out uh, all of our books there. But uh, from myself... And from you. Yes, and from me. And from you. And the uh, cat. And the cat who's been sitting there patiently. We'd like to uh, wish you um, a peaceful week, a reflective week, and, well, remainingly creative week. But at the same time, um, we pay tribute to Her Majesty the Queen. Bye-bye.